Adopting? So are we! Check out the all-new Adopting.com for great adoption resources and support. Listen to all our podcasts for tips and info on the adoption topics you want to know about. Whether you're an adoptive parent, adoption professional, or just someone who lives adoption, there's a community waiting for you at Adopting.com. This is Adoption The Long View, a podcast brought to you by Adopting.com. I'm your host, Lori Holden, author of The Open-Hearted Way to Open Adoption. Join me as we take a closer look at what happens after you adopt your child and begin parenting them. Your adoption journey isn't over then, it's just beginning. In this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of thought-provoking and influential guests as we help you make the most of your adoption journey. Like any trip worth taking, there will be ups and downs and challenges. Here's what you're going to wish you'd known from the start. Ready? Let's go. So many parents at some point wish they'd had a time machine to go back and know earlier what we didn't know then about parenting, which is the whole premise of this podcast, to take the long view. And with adoptive parenting, that wish can be even stronger because so much we, quote, know about the adoption part of parenting doesn't actually turn out to be as well-functioning as we think. Much of the conventional wisdom about adoption turns out not great for adoptees. And by the time we figure that out, often through crisis, the moments of opportunity to be on a healthier trajectory may have passed. Hearing adult adoptees tell us what works well for them and not so well for them is a gift to us. With me today is Greg Gentry, an adoptee who has reflected on his own journey of adoptedness and who hears stories of other adoptees through his connection with Fireside Adoptees, an online group to help adoptees thrive. Greg interviewed me last year there as a means of helping adoptees get a glimpse into why their adoptive parents might be the way we are. And I have the pleasure of interviewing Greg here to give adoptive parents the experience of entering a time machine, of consulting a sort of crystal ball orienting on the future to lend insights to what helps and what can hurt adoptees. Welcome, Greg. So glad to be here, Lori. Thank you very much. It's so great to talk with you. Let me tell you a little bit about who you are. (laughs) Absolutely, I'd be interested to hear. (laughs) Greg Gentry is a domestic, baby scoop era adoptee if you want to know more about that term check out episode 302. greg was born in california in 1969 he spent the first six weeks of his life in foster care before going to live with his adoptive family greg has gone through the ups and downs of reunion with his maternal side since 2006. in 2021 a fellow adoptee helped him locate his paternal family he's been in reunion with members of his late father's side since early 2022 and continues to cultivate those relationships. Since coming out of the fog, a term that we're going to cover in this episode, Greg has been an active member of the online and in-person adoptee communities. Greg is facilitator and interviewer for Fireside Adoptees. Additionally, Greg hosts in-person meetings for Adoptees Connect out of Derry, New Hampshire. So again, Greg, I'm so excited to have this opportunity to talk with you today about the five things that your parents did well and six things you wish they could have done differently. I'm really happy to be here. And I wanted to say before you start that the interview that you and I had on Fireside was was transformative for me and put me in on a track, I think, for more openness and receptivity to what's going on in the broader adoption constellation and a real desire to be as informative and helpful as I can be for adoptive parents, if in any way I can aid in helping the experience for adoptees to improve through helping adoptive parents. So thank you for that. It's an honor to hear you say that, Greg. And I I think you've 
you've highlighted for me what what I think the secret sauce in all of this is is openness and an, which is an ability to talk about and hear about things. And when we do get triggered about them, we explore our triggers instead of shut down that that openness rather than closedness, which is probably I'm guessing what we're going to explore. But you find that in your work and I find it in my work. And I do think in, in the um, emotionally charged relationships within adoption, that's what helps us navigate them. I would have to agree with that for sure. So would you briefly tell us what you'd like to share about becoming an adoptee and being an adoptee? What, like, what's your story? So it's interesting. I, I like the word about becoming and being. I like those held together because it is easy in in the, the wider wider culture to view adoption kind of as a unfortunately a transactional thing that happens in the single moment in time. Person was adopted and adoptees like me, many of us think of this as such an ongoing process. We we speak about being adopted meaning it, it continues for us. So I, I will say to people, I am adopted, whereas somebody who's not as conversant might say, oh, you you were adopted. I'll say I am adopted because it is part of my identity for life. And it does inform absolutely everything about me. It touches every area of, of who I am, touches all my relationships, touches how I work, touches how I raised my family. And it also allows, I think, for once people start to take that in more and, and ask about my individual experience, provides opportunities for things people haven't really considered that I think is really beneficial for, for social awareness, because there are things, there are narratives that are very hard to topple, or even just to get a footing on and say, this isn't the full story of what's going on here, or this isn't an accurate portrayal of, of what this experience is. I would say that, of course, every adoptee has a highly individual and personal and sacred experience. So I, I tend, even though there are some generalities, of course, in adoption, like we could speak about private infant adoption, for example, versus something else, but there are some generalities, but it's important to respect the uniqueness of everybody's story and the fact that all of us will come at it from, from that perspective. We do find, though, I think that there are commonalities that unite us, even though the circumstances around relinquishment are going to be different for each person. The way it impacts the nervous system may be different for different people. It's still the fact that we can, I think, come together in ways that recognize and see across all of that, that there are things that unite us that allow us to speak together and hopefully unite in a, in a way that's more beneficial for the reform of the broader adoption narrative. It was explained to me this way once, Greg, and this is what I think you're saying. Because I used to really try to orient on adoption was something I did. It wasn't something where my children's identities, I didn't want to saddle them with that identity. So I was very precise about my language. We adopted them instead of they are adopted or they were adopted. And somebody explained it to me like this. It's not like I was a female or I was an American. I was those things then. And I am those things now, just like I was adopted and I am adopted today. And so that helped me understand that becoming and being that you were talking about. So what's your story, Greg, the, the parts that you want to share? So oh, you, you mentioned that I was adopted in 1969, closed adoption in the baby scoop era, which I know you've said that you've covered that in other episodes, but my birth mother was very young and so was my father. And I know there was some discussion of whether I might stay in the family. I think probably 
it was decided that collectively there wasn't there wasn't going to be a possibility for that. I don't think it was entirely due to financial circumstances. I think it was more due to the maturity level of the people I might have remained with. I had an uncle who was interested in in adopting me if my mother had not been able to keep me. I think he was probably just too young to to have taken that on at that point. So, and I believe my my grandmother was at a point in her life where probably it wasn't for her something she could consider having another another child that close to the family to raise. So the circumstances, I've never completely hammered out, even in my reunion, the full understanding of all of it, but I've heard bits and pieces of it. And in 1969, as, as part of the, the closed adoption, it meant that I don't have access, for example, to my my original birth certificate, being born in California, I still don't have that. Even though I'm in reunion and, and know these families, I still don't have a copy of that. I was raised near San Diego and lived 37 years in California. And the fog plays a big part of that. So we can talk about that a little bit too, if you'd like. But we'll talk about the different ways growing up and thinking about adoption played into my life. I feel like it was in a lot of ways kind of an ordinary life but it also was punctuated with these this disparity that I felt and didn't always know where that came from in the sense of not fully not fully fitting in I would say I entered adulthood having not really looked into my adoption at all I found out when I was 10 I was adopted by having watched uh, an episode of my three sons and Ernie on there was adopted and I asked my mom I just kind of called out nervously I wasn't adopted was I and she came into the room and said, you were adopted. And we we had told you that before, and you must not remember that, I guess. I, I don't know when that happened, but it wasn't something I was able to process at the time, I guess. So I ended up having this conversation with my parents. They were very compassionate at age 10 when I found that out. But I, I felt more of a disconnect after that conversation. And I felt it with my my two older adoptive sisters who are biologically related to my parents. And so I sort of settled into this parallel. I'm in the family, but I don't I don't feel the same as them. I didn't before, but I definitely didn't after. So let me let me interrupt here because some listeners may be thinking that maybe it was a mistake for your parents to tell you at that time. Hmm. that it would have been better for you because of the what you just said if you had not known can you address that if if that's correct or not yeah it's it's definitely not something to keep from from a child or from an adult because you know i have friends who are who find out at age 50 or above that they were adopted and it's absolutely devastating to someone's identity and it it can be for a child you could argue that if I found out at 10, I was pretty far along and that that was kind of late to find that out. They considered it, like I said, in this sort of transactional back in the past sort of thing. We we told you that before. So really that meant the conversation for them had ended and we weren't talking about it anymore. And we never really did. Uh, that was problematic too. And when we got, when we talk about the things that I think they should have done differently, that will be one of the things I'll mention. I will say for anybody who thinks maybe I just won't tell them it's it's actually a very cruel thing to do because very many adoptees know there's something up they feel it it doesn't feel the same and if you tell them or you don't tell them what that might be that's happening 
some of them are going to find out anyway, and it's going to be very catastrophic when they do for them and and for the adoptive parent. And if you thought the relationship might have been strained before, it, it probably will break irreparably at that point. But it's also, if you think about it, unthinkable to, to keep a, a human being from knowing that about themselves. They also internalize yeah. it. They're fe- having that sense in them, that emotion, that intuitive sense that something's different or wrong about them. I'm doing that in air quotes. They internalize it and be in a lack of information and, and ability to make sense of that story. They make it that you as an adoptee can make it about you. So I think you make a really good point. This is not a one and done conversation. We tell them at age two or four or six and call it done. This is a continuing and a deepening. And I think that it, maybe you're going to get to this in your in the items we talk about. But I mentioned a time machine. One of the things I didn't know was the developmental stages and the, that my adoptees are going to understand that ad- adoption at deeper and deeper levels along the way. And so when I thought at age four that we were all in the clear because nothing was coming yeah. up from it, it's just because they didn't have the depth of understanding at that point. And then it does it does come back around again. There's a, a, always a spiraling around of these things. And the ill fit that I've talked about, if that's being actively kept from somebody, why why they feel that way, I know from my LDA, late discovery adoptee friends, the resentment that that can build. Because in order to keep someone in that state, you you actively have to be engaged in in a deception that will will devastate somebody and and absolutely damage relationships beyond repair. And in a lot of cases, some people have said, "Well, it wasn't the plan for me to be told." It's really unacceptable, to be honest, to be blunt. It's not acceptable to not tell your child they are adopted. Not just go out and say that directly. Yeah, and we did interview two late discovery adoptees in episode four hundred three, and they said exactly what you're saying. Even if you're not lying by commission, the lie by omission puts a barrier between parent and child that no parent would consciously want to have there. And this is probably one of the, I want to make sure we get to those 11 things. So, but but to lay the groundwork for those 11 things you're going to cover with us, we need to talk about coming out of the fog. Tell us briefly what that is and what that experience was like for you. Yeah. And I just, I just passed the two-year mark of coming out of the fog just a couple of days ago. Wow. What an experience that is. It's not a universal experience, but it's a widespread experience for adoptees. And it varies for, for every person, but it's for me an experience of having kind of existed in this this bubble, this cushion, where the full impact of being an, an adopted person isn't isn't aware, isn't part of your awareness, isn't part of your understanding. You've you've kind of bargained it away in a sense, or never allowed it to come to the surface to think about it actively, and when it finally does happen. It's completely, for me, it was very disorienting and destabilizing because it was an impact of of loss. It was realizing all the things that had to happen for me to be where I was at age 51. It happened for me. And that's common for baby scoop era adoptees. I found to be about 50 years old and suddenly come out of the fog when they realize, but I bought into the societal narrative of adoption being beautiful, being a chosen and wanted person and completing a family. And maybe my birth family wasn't desirable and sort of you buy into a lot of that. And you stay in this fog, this cushion, this space that that perpetuates that for you. 
and so coming out of it is is being confronted by the reality of what it really means to have been impacted by your adoption and realizing there are parts of you that suddenly fall away ways that you coped with the world with your reality those are gone suddenly you may have family support that's gone when you suddenly you're talking about this people that needed you to go along with what the story was and suddenly when you're out of the fog and you're speaking on your own in your own terms in your own language and, and addressing what this is like it can be an alienating experience too it's liberating for sure, but it also comes with a with a high price. For me, it came with a very high price to come out of the fog. So I have to ask then, if being in the fog is cushiony and safe, and being out of the fog is liberating but hard, why is it worth why is it worth it giving up the safety and the cushion? I think it's something that your mind will bring you into that state of coming out of the fog. I think you become aware that you're maybe approaching the boundary of it and that it's something might be about to change. I could kind of see that happening for me, but it hadn't fully hit into me. It's, I think, worked out at a subconscious level where all the, all these elements are colliding in you and they're going to push you into a new consciousness, a new awareness, whether you want to be there or not. This is why you can't really yank somebody out of the fog. You can keep talking to them about it, but you can't precipitate that event for them because it's not it's not an ethical thing to do because they may not be prepared for that for that at that point because inwardly and it's not that work is being done but it kind of is the processing to bring them into that awareness may not have completed and so it's not a safe thing to do to somebody to to try to pull them out of that we want for that kind of liberation and we want for people to have that kind of awareness and come into their own but you can't really make it happen for someone in terms of whether it's a space that you say, hey, I was safer in there, I think a lot of people, and myself included, felt, yes, I was safer in there. But you realize you're a different person when you come out. There's really no no question of going back into it because you can't un undo what happened. You won't be able to restore that. I've heard people talk like, I just need to get back to this. I need to get back to this. There's really no way to unring the bell and go back in the fog. So coming out is kind of a path towards more wholeness, and it needs to be self-directed. Is that kind of what I'm hearing you say? It's definitely those things. I won't pretend that the wholeness just happens. It's work. It's transformation. All these pieces. Yeah. It's not, I have a new picture of myself and I move forward with that. That probably happens for some people. As I said, it's very individualized. But usually, at least for the people I know, it, it's been like, what do I do now? How am I going to get through this? What What's going on? How do I even describe this? It is an opportunity for that wholeness and liberation, but it doesn't just happen, unfortunately. It's it's a lot of work. It's messy before it gets whole, right? Yeah. Wholeness and liberation. It's a lifetime to, to, to build what happens after that. That's mm -hmm. what, I've, what I'm finding so far. So can you tell us the five things that you've come up with that your parents did well? Because I think we need to... Pay attention to those things first before we go to the other side. We need to get a solid footing here as parents. Sure. And I thought about the order of these, and I don't I don't know if, you know, it's easy to think like in terms of a hierarchy of needs, like the Maslow hierarchy of needs. I didn't try to put them in, in a sequence like that, but I did want to start with material provision. And right away, that can be a problematic statement because I am not saying they had more money than let's say my biological family. So I was, I ended up where I was supposed. That's not at all what I'm saying. That's 
part of the problem with the social narrative of adoption is, but these people might have more money and resources for you. So you're in a better place. I'm not trying to suggest that. That's not an acceptable reason for coercing someone to give up a child or thinking you're not entitled to have your own child because you can't provide for them the way someone else can. But I will say that there was stability in in the provision I had. It wasn't wealth or anything like this, but it was reliable, which is important for a person to be able to be raised that way with some sort of stability. So as much as I, again, like I said, I'm not trying to paint it in terms of of disparities of wealth and provision. I just would say they did a good job of making sure I had a roof over my head and, and enough to eat. So I did just put that there. But interestingly, even though that's a foundational thing, it's not probably the most important thing that I think that they gave me. Uh, they did give me a lot of affection. I would think that that's probably the second thing here. Interestingly, though, the way my my nervous system is primed, I kind of react against the physical part of that. Even now, with, with touches and things from them, it, it's, it feels painful at times. It physically can feel painful. From them specifically or from people? From them. Okay. Them specifically to the point where I kind of recoil from it. They, they, they would want for this to be a really open and loving thing and, and think they're expressing that. And I am receiving it that way, but I, I'm also aware of this physical boundary I want to have from it to kind of insulate myself from it a little bit. But I feel like it was the right thing to do to, to try to show me that affection because it did show that they were they were trying to be loving towards me. And that's something I definitely think they did right. The household was was very calm and peaceful without a lot of emotional turmoil. That's actually part of the downside too that I'll get into. It was so bland that I didn't experience the full range of emotional development I should have. I wasn't exposed to that because they were also not emotionally mature that way. So that that will actually kind of go into both of these categories. But in terms of, of being acclimated to a, a more soothing environment, that that definitely was something there. That the house was calm, wasn't a lot of a lot of things happening that would be distressing uh, psychologically to me, even though I didn't realize it was a deficit of emotion that was really being expressed. It was salutary. It was it was helpful to me as somebody growing up that that it wasn't disruptive and and combative and all of these different kinds of ways. So I would say that that's definitely something also that I believe they they got right. And I know they did want me to fit in with the larger family. And by the larger family, I don't mean just my my two older sisters, but with my grandma, with all my aunts and uncles, my cousins. There was always an effort to for me to be integrated with them. And so I, I always saw, and I'm using the word saw versus felt because it's important, the language there. I saw all the family and I sat with all the family and I went to the reunions with the family. There was, there was a lot of family in San Diego. I never could sit comfortably in it. I couldn't feel it. I couldn't feel what it felt like to be connected with them. They were always very nice people to me. And I think my parents did did the right thing by wanting me to be to be part of that. They they also didn't know I was not experiencing it the way I think they hoped I would, but they were trying at least for me to have a place to fit. They weren't keeping me off to the side. They were never saying, This is our adopted son, as you know, or nothing like that. It was never brought up anywhere in the family. 
yeah. an attempt at integration. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that. There were some other adoptees of the family, I guess. I never found out who they were. That was kind of problematic, but I understand now why why that happened. So I think those are four of the five things I would say that that they did for me, that they did right and did well. And this will be possibly a problematic word too. It always made me feel wanted. Now, wanted is a problematic word for adoptees because it kind of leads to <laughs> a lot of things. Take a while to unpack that. But I never had the sense that they wished I was someplace else. Let me put it that way. Maybe that's better than wanted because wanted can sound like chosen. And chosen is a whole a whole problematic thing for adoptees as well because we know that that's not really the way this this works in adoption. It's usually a question of who's available, not, not who was chosen. But I always felt wanted. Now, wanted can mean that they felt a gap in their family, and my dad has expressed it that way, and they wanted to fill the gap. That, that can be problematic, too. That can be language around family building that's not salutary to adoptees as well. But I always felt like, though, that they were happy I was there. Maybe maybe I should use language like that to say it, to say what I'm trying to say. It, I, it was never a case of this was a mistake for us or, you know, really fit here. Nothing like that really happened. So I feel like uh, I was raised knowing there was a place that they had hoped I was comfortable in and that I was fitting in with. So thank you for sharing those five things. When I hear them, what I'm relating it to is kind of the home study, like what the home study is meant to do is set the bar to make sure that baby or child is being placed in a safe, affectionate, calm, connected home where the child has a place, that sense of being, of having a place wanted, like you say. It's a low, it's a bar, it's a minimum level, it's not a maximum level. So that's just to try to prevent further loss and trauma from a child from being in need for a lack of um, predictability with food and housing and all that things and, and affection and being integrated in family some level of emotional well-being of the family at least in current day i know that wasn't always happening in the baby scoop era but now greg let's go to the shadow side because to be whole for us parents to also come out of our fog and be able to think critically about how we do adoption and not continually be on autopilot with it, with somebody else's rules, we need to be able to take a critical look at things. So this is where we're gonna get into the harder side, the shadow side. One trait that comes from emotional intelligence is the ability to incorporate the shadow side with the sunny side. This is my very predictable both and message that has to pop up in at least, at least once every episode. So, Start talking to us about the six categories of things that perhaps your parents missed the mark on. I would like to start with the emotional intelligence part. I could, I think, describe it as a lack of emotional modeling and engagement. And really, that's symptomatic of what they themselves didn't have. I realized that they couldn't show me what had never developed in them. So I don't know. It's not meant to be an unfair blow to them. So you didn't have this, so I don't have it. But the fact of the matter is it did mean that I was feeling things, but I wasn't seeing anybody else like, act like they felt anything. Very little range of, of emotional contrast in my family. They would bicker and little, little things like this, but 
there were my dad was was a very warm and affectionate person he, he still is and my mom is too but there wasn't much display beyond that i didn't learn about anger there was a few very few emotional outbursts like that and they scared me but i never it was never something i understood or had come to see was an acceptable part of, of the range of human emotion. In fact, my, my mom kind of speaks against that even now. She's kind of opposed to feelings. One time, really recently, she said, you want to go with us on to this little trip? I said, I, I really want to stay home and, and process some things that I'm thinking and feeling. And her response was, I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to sit and feel what I feel. And so it's a very revealing thing, but it means that whatever development I had seems to have come from whatever my inward disposition was genetically, and then developing something on my own independently of what I was seeing from them, because they definitely weren't showing it to me. So I'm fortunate that I was able to transcend that to the degree that I have and have a, a broader range, broader range of emotional expression, because that intelligence piece and I haven't been perfect at it by any means, but it's it's allowed me to see that this would have been something that I would have benefited from in my childhood if that had been there. And I think my whole family would have benefited from that as well, my, my sisters as well, seeing that. So that that's one thing that I would say right off the bat is something I wish had, had been different, whether or not, again, it's fair to say they, they should have been that way when when they weren't able to be. Or didn't know how to be that might be a different question but i would have benefited from that if they had so maybe if they had done some work around feeling the shadow side and been able to model that for you and given you entries into your own shadow side the full range of emotions yeah i would i would say that's true and i know that for the age bracket they were in for the era that kind of work wasn't going on so <laughs> It was stolid and working class, and this is how you are. It wasn't harsh, but it wasn't emotive either. And it, it left it left without this, again, contrast that would have been beneficial for, for the kids growing up in that house to have been able to see and, and model themselves. I think probably one of the things I would also put on this, this list of six is there was only a qualified recognition of my differences when you have an adopted child, and I don't need, I don't need to tell you that story. They they're different, and it doesn't benefit the child or the parents to pretend like the differences aren't there, that they shouldn't be there, or that they should be kind of. I use the word or this term expression paved over. I always felt like the differences are paved over because instead of Freely admitting that the reason I had differences was because I came from somewhere else. There was never any attribution to anything, any genetic inheritance or anything I had. It was you're just a little different. I had I had a different temperament, very different temperament, different emotional gifts, different different disposition, of course. And because of that, it probably was not well serving to me to act like like that wasn't there and to act like and to tell me and I'll I'll speak about this also to speak like it didn't matter to to them that those differences might be there it was more comforting to them to tell me they didn't see any difference than it was for them to ask me whether I noticed the difference myself and it wasn't that they 
tried to short circuit anything I any of my talents coming out or anything. They just didn't know what to do with them entirely. They didn't know how to help me cultivate them. They didn't show a lot of interest in them. They kind of held them in them sort of like awe and reverence, like, oh, you're you're well, I guess you're just really smart or this or that. And that meant I I was really acutely aware of the difference. And they weren't unintelligent. It wasn't anything like that. They just they put me in this category that made me feel like you're telling me I'm not different, but I know I am. Why can't we just talk about that? And why can't that be okay the way it is? So that's something that I feel like it's really important for adoptive parents to be able to, to acknowledge and recognize and, and cultivate in their children. Yeah, as I listen to you, I'm recalling the last interview I did, episode 406 with Dr. Shetra Werdeleiker. And we were talking about Trans, talking about race with adoptees. And one of the things we, we got to was that we need to see the sameness, um, specifically about race. But I think what you're saying is this is about adoptees too. We need to recognize our sameness and the connection that we have, the ways that we're the same, but also the differences, giving room for those. Because without that piece, you can't be seen for who you are. And if I had my own time machine and I could go back with my own kids, I would have put more energy into seeing my kids. Now, race race is something that's very apparent. It's not right there on the surface. But as you're talking about the dispositions and the traits, I don't think I was attuned to seeing my kids for who they are, for the ways they were different from me. That's one thing that I wish. So thank you for that, for number two. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I really relate to that. Great. Do you have anything else to say on that before we go to number three? Unfortunately, it's it's interpreted in probably fairly as by the adoptee saying it's snubbing where I came from and the stock I came from, the people that, that, that I'm here from. And so to show it, to say that that doesn't apply is really a, a denigration of, of who I am as a person. That's very similar to what you've said here. I think. Yeah. That's a good extension of that is um, having a respect and a curiosity about your original family, your very first family. For sure. I think one of the things I'd like to put on this list is they were not forthcoming about what they knew around the circumstances of my relinquishment and adoption. And I still don't know very much of that. And whatever I do know, I've heard almost none of it, none of it from them. It's the little bit I've heard from my birth mother. So it will sound unbelievable probably to a lot of people, but I, I can easily feel like I came out of nowhere. Like I really was delivered by a stork or into somebody's arms and that I didn't have this, this past, this history, that there was no agency or uh, no handing off of a child. I can't piece any of that together in my mind because nobody's ever told me what happened. I, the only thing I know is the this, this six weeks of foster care, which was a shock to find out too. And unfortunately, that was practice in the baby scoop era for, is this child going to be okay? Are they going to manifest psychological issues? Let's put them over here for a while, see how they're going to do when they get placed. But they, they were not forthcoming about what they did know. So when I did a few times ask about it, there were a lot of tears from my mom. We've told you everything we know. That wasn't the case. <laughs> I found out that wasn't the case because they put me to the test in a, in a really dramatic way. When I told them, I found my birth mother. I said, what, what was the name you were, you were given up under? And I had to tell them that name. So my mom said, okay, that's the right name. So right away I knew. So you do know these things. You, you haven't told me these things, but you've been telling me 
you've shared everything you know and you've been crying about it so i won't ask you about it and so i don't even to this day know very many things about that i can tell you that 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 leads to, to trust issues with towards an adoptive parent or parents to know that those things were withheld particularly when when i was asking about them and still being the, the most important thing was the defensive position for my mom to preserve whatever this meant for her and not to be able to face the pain of, oh, he doesn't think he's ours because that was the language, you're ours. We chose you, you were an answer to prayer. And so there was this illusion for her and the thought of me getting closer and any approximation of that wasn't something she could take. So they kept things from me. And I feel like that's a real disservice to do to an adoptee. Yeah, and just about every attachment therapist that I've listened to or talked with says that it's it's less about the story that you have to come to terms with than it is about the way you can process your story and the, the space and support you have in making sense of that story. It's the making sense of the story that helps. So for adoptees, when you're missing the first chapter or two or the introduction to the story, that can make that sense making really hard when you're when you're missing some pieces and then what you're also saying i think greg is that when those pieces have been kept from you or you were told you had all the pieces but then you didn't that sense of betrayal on top of everything anything to wrap up number three before you go on to number four no i think that that about says it for that thank you i think the fourth one would be it's kind of rolled up into something else which is not asking me about how I felt, just telling me it didn't matter. It didn't matter to them, is what I mean. They weren't saying it didn't matter to me, but they were in a sense saying it didn't matter to me. So it solved their problems of insecurity. It doesn't matter to us. It doesn't matter to us. We don't think of you any differently. To this day, I haven't been asked how I felt about that. <laughs> even now, even after we've had finally serious conversations about adoption, this hasn't been any of them. The only thing was a challenging question. Well, you didn't have it bad, did you? That's a confrontational question. <laughs> How am I supposed to answer something like that? No, I didn't have it as bad as unfortunately many adoptees I know did, but it's still a confrontational question. What do you what are you expecting me to answer when you say something like that? So never having been asked what my experience was like. So kind of making this a feedback loop where they were so concerned about delivering the right messages for you that they didn't really check into how it was being received by you. Is that saying that right? Yes. And, and it ties into a couple of the other points that are on this list here. And one of them is that whenever they had that conversation with me in those early years and before I asked at age 10, and when I asked at age 10, I don't think they ever made sure I understood what adoption meant. They might have not have known what it meant. And I, I say that because you mentioned that kind of instantaneous adoption mindset. It's done. That's what it meant to them. That was, in, we, we've gone over this, maybe we, we don't have to talk about that anymore. That was in the past. You were little, it doesn't have an impact. So never making sure that I understood. The only thing I kept hearing in the few conversations after that was how much I was wanted, how much I was loved. There was never any question about, do you, do you want to know anything about her? Do you want us to tell you anything about her or what we know? It was, it was none of that. It was just, we want you to know loud and clear that we want you here. We love you. And 
that's what it became in my head. Okay. It didn't settle me, didn't resolve the the conflict I was feeling inside. It just that was the end of the conversation. It, this is number five, is that right? Or is this an four uh, A? <laughs> kind of like a four A. Okay. I, if I may have mislabeled some of these, but so it, it sounds kind of, yeah. like this one is when your parents got out of their comfort zone and talking about adoption issues, and and let's acknowledge that their comfort zone about adoption issues was not a very big one, but when they did, when they were pushed to the edge of that comfort zone. They came back, they fell back on their comfort area topics of we want you, we love you. And you're saying that's not sufficient, that's it, that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Exactly the right, the right way to describe that. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And it also needs to be shared with an adoptee in a way that you're not trying to corner or influence their experience because you can have a great adoption. You could argue that I did and still say, this sucks that this happened to me. I wish this hadn't happened to me. And they could still have done, everyone would say, they did all the things right. So yeah, yeah. And it still is not something I wanted to have happened in my life and that I wouldn't wish for people to go through. So it can devolve into this formulaic, what, what do the adoptive parents have to do to get this right? And unfortunately, they can do all the right things. And you still will be faced with the fact that the, the person who is adopted knows whether or not that's where they want to be. They grow up with all the money and all the love and all of the opportunity and still go, why do I have to be here? This, these are my people. This isn't where, I, where my body thought I was going to end up. So I know that can be distressing, I'm sure, for because it's part of this part of the narrative. But we're building a family. We're doing something loving for, for a child, and we want them so much. And you just you can't corner the experience of the of the person who's going through this and try to shape that into what you want it to be on the other side. Angela Tucker in her new book, You Should Be Grateful, she mentions this both and which an adoptee can feel love and connection with their birth with their adoptive parents and an appreciation for being in this family, and at the same time wish they hadn't been adopted, they hadn't needed to be adopted. Those two things, when those two things can coexist in an adoptive parent's reality. That gives the adoptee the permission to have both of those things. And it actually creates more connection between adoptee and adoptive parent rather than less connection. When adoptive parents can allow for that, I wish I wasn't adopted. I'm glad you said that because it's not a temperamental thing. It's not, you're not my real mom. You're not, adoptees are entitled to feel that and say those things, but that's not what it is. It's not a temperamental outburst. It's like, why do I feel scratchy in these clothes all the time? It's because we make you wear a wool sweater. Wool doesn't feel good on my skin. We have to wear the wool sweater because you're in the family. We all wear wool sweaters and, hey, I have to do this, but this isn't a fit for me this way. So, yeah, the both and part, I have enormous fondness and love for my parents. And I wish something different had happened to me. That's hard to say. They could listen to this. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, in the back of my mind, I am thinking, is it in your mind that your parents might listen to this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. It's, and it's not it's, easy to say these things. Yeah. And the step before saying them out loud is to be to have the permission to say them to yourself and live your truth. And I think that's what I, I would like adoptive parents to hear is to give your adoptees the space to understand their truth by working on your own stuff. Can you go on to number five, Greg? Yeah, number five is 
they didn't provide subsequent occasions to talk about adoption. So after age 10, up to when I found my birth mother at 36 to 37, there was a lot of times we could have talked about this. and We never, ever did, except to have my mom say, we told you what we know and cry. So they, they missed all these years that they could have, even if they didn't, let's say they knew nothing else. Let's say they really didn't know how old she was. Right? They still could have been talking to me about it. We could have discovered it together. My heart breaks for your mom and for your dad. And for the guidance they got during those, those times, in those times, or the lack of guidance. And it breaks for the adoptive parents these days who have this fragility and this brittleness. It feels almost breakable when you talk about it like this. I, my heart, I mean, the, the not being able to talk about adoption issues doesn't hurt just adoptees. It hurts adoptive parents too. Think of the life they could have had, the much richer life they could have had if their own wounds, their fragility, their brittleness, had been factored in to the conversations adoption professionals had with them about adoption. Boy, that was a really wonderful thing to hear. And it is it is fragile and tenuous. And I understand how it must be emotional for someone to adopt a child and want so much for this connection and to want, want to uh, preserve that every way they think they have to. And the insecurity of them could very well be there. I do understand that cognitively. I can feel it, some of it too. I just know that it it can never be the it can never be at the center of what happens in in an adoption. It has to always be that that the child goes into the center and the insecurity of the parents. It's not that that's not important. It's that it can't be resolved by by going and, and getting a child. Exactly. Um, adoption cures childness, childlessness, but it doesn't cure anything that caused the childlessness, like infertility. If there's still grief, if there's still insecurity over mineness, like this baby is mine, this child is mine, that will be there until it's addressed on the adult levels, not with the child, you need to meet my needs, but let me figure out how to meet my own needs with um, my own network of support, whether that's professional help and therapy or a support group or um, something at the adult level that doesn't make the child the solution. Do you have a number six for us? I do. And it's it's actually a really kind of a painful one because it's the sort of thing that puts an uncomfortable spotlight on something that happened in, in my family context, which is that my parents displayed problematic behavior towards other adoptees in my family that they didn't display towards me. And I, I watched an inequitable treatment of people that they should have been more loving and nurturing towards and didn't receive that kind of treatment myself. But it, it always, since I've observed that, has made me wonder what they really think about adoption because a lot of it could be interpreted as, as saviorism of saying those kids were adopted and they're not appreciative of it. And isn't that a shame? Look what they look what they threw away. And these are people very, very close in my family to me. And I had to see this without anyone asking me what an adoptee experience is like ever, never asking me about this, not realizing how painful that would be for me to, to see other people treated that differently. 
That must be very painful to know that they're treating you wrong one way about your adoptedness, but other people a different way about their adoptedness. And there's kind of a true yeah. colors thing in between those two, right? Yes, because the only reason I can think of in my mind for the disparity, one is that they really wanted a boy to complete their family. And that was me because they had two daughters. So I was kind of placed in this kind of on this pedestal. And another was I was highly compliant. I, I didn't disobey. I didn't do anything wrong growing up. So I wasn't a problem. The other adoptees displayed different types of behavior than I did. They were the ones that were talked about. But you were a good adoptee. I was a good adoptee. Even their biological families were talked about in negative terms. As Oh, they're repeating the patterns of... So I, I had to hear this for years, for decades. And no, and I was still in the fog, but I was kind of like, something's weird about this. And when I finally came out of the fog, I realized that was that was not acceptable too. Because the other people knew I was an adoptee too. They weren't being treated that way. Why was I being elevated in this way? Because I just because I got along very well with everybody and I didn't say anything. I mean if if I'd done something disappointing, would I have been, well, we gave you a chance and you you blew it. So that's painful. And that will always cast a shadow for me about or wonder about what, what do you really think about what adoption is? Do you really think you're rescuing or saving people? Mm -hmm. You act like it. I really appreciate you sharing that, Greg, because when I work with adoptive parents, at first, what they're after is, what are the words I need to say? What are Tell me the words, tell me the script to get this right. And I feel like your parents had the script. And so what I try to help adoptive parents know is that this isn't about the words, this is about where you're coming from. How comfortable are you with this actual world of adoption, not just the shiny, happy, sunny side world of adoption? Because the work that we do as adoptive parents in becoming in expanding our comfort zone comes out in the right words and the lack of work you can have the right words but not have that feeling behind the right words and i think that's maybe what you're saying you experienced the words were there but the the presence the vibe was not there because yeah. the work hadn't been done and there's no awareness that there is any work to do which is why i admire so much what you do because you, you, you know what's there yeah and thank you so much for these 11 glimpses into an adoptee's heart and adoptee's experiences. Like you said, these are yours and other people may, some of them may resonate with other people and some of them may not. Everybody's probably got their own list if they had the freedom to think about their own list and the, the motivation to do that. So we're closing in on the end of our time together. And I'd like to ask you the question I'm asking all season four guests, Greg, how can we best help our children build healthy connections and identities right from the start or from today? I really think the transparency element is huge in this and the willingness to have done some inner work before adopting a child and understanding the importance of keeping your child at the center. You know, I, I kind of like the constellation idea much better than the triad, which kind of suggested three equal sides. And unfortunately, it's not, there really is a need to, to keep your child at the center. And I think that when you can do that and share transparently with them and enter into 
whatever questions they have and hear hear them, hear their words and value what they're saying and also value where they came from. I think you will have done the best you could do. That again, there's no guarantee of a good good experience. I don't even really like those those ways of talking about. Did you have a good adoption experience of that? Because it sounds like a resort. How many stars would you give this? And it, it's not. It's a life that you live. So it's really hard to to break it down into those categories. But I feel like that would be what I believe would be the best you can do as an adoptive parent to show that you're trying to center your child, not insisting that they have a certain reaction to it or feel a certain way in response. So latitude for them to feel what they feel and transparency about everything you can share with them. I love that, Greg. Latitude and transparency. Those really feed into the openness too, that I is is the one word distillation that I'm that I work on. So thank you for that. And thank you for all the vulnerability you've shown us in the last hour. I want to say that the allyship that you and, and other adoptive parents on the platforms who are really trying to do your best for this is recognized and appreciated, at least by me. I won't speak for everybody because I know that that's not the proper thing to do either. But thank you for entering into this with us to try to do the best we can for the future of, of adoptees, the people that will still enter into this later on. Thank you so much for that, Greg. And I want to also spread that shout out to all the adoptive parents who are striving and doing the work, doing the work, people, as we say around here, at least once an episode too. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for being vulnerable. I hope that if your adoptive parents do listen, that they see your heart and that it expands their comfort zone in being able to love you and see you. Thank you. That means a lot. I appreciate it, Lori. Thanks for being here, Greg. Special thanks to Adopting.com for producing and sponsoring Adoption The Long View. Find this and other adoption resources at Adopting.com and consider joining other caring listeners by sharing this episode with others who will benefit from the insights of our guest. Please subscribe. It helps others find us and give this episode a rating wherever you listen. This simple act helps others to find us. Thanks to each of you for tuning in and investing in your adoption's long view. May you meet everything on your road ahead with confidence, curiosity, and compassion.